You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Um, good evening, everyone, and welcome, and thanks very much for joining us this evening um, at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the eighth lecture in our series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968-1999. To begin with, I'd like to sincerely acknowledge the Kulin Nations um, as sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, work, and gather here this evening and extend our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. The Defining Moments series encompasses 16 lectures over two years that take a deeper look at critical moments that have shaped Australian art since 1968. The series explores selected game changes in Australian art, addressing key contemporary art exhibitions and projects staged over the last three decades of the 20th century and reflecting on the ways these exhibitions and projects have shaped art history and contemporary Australian culture more broadly. As always, we'd like to extend our sincere thanks to presenting partner Abercrombie and Kent, who've been generous long-time supporters of ACCA's uh, lecture series, and equally to COVA, the Centre of Visual Art at the University of Melbourne, who are supporting the series as research partner. We're also grateful to our media partners, Art Guide Australia, the Saturday Paper and Triple R, and our event partners, the City of Melbourne, Cappy and the Melbourne Gin Company, who've provided this evening's cocktail titled Desert Sunset. Um, tonight, we're really excited to present the eighth and final lecture in the 2019 series, and we're especially delighted and honoured to welcome Professor Anne Marsh, whose lecture this evening is titled Post-Object Art in Australia and New Zealand. And we'll discuss the canonical exhibition, Australia and New Zealand Post-Object Art, a survey, which was held at the Experimental Art Foundation in Adelaide in 1976. Australian and New Zealand Post-Object Art, a survey was instrumental in its exploration of then radical practices that might be characterised as temporary, dispersed, mixed media, site-specific, temporal, performative and ephemeral, or what theorist Donald Brooke referred to at the time as alternative, non-commodity, idea art, as well as conceptual process and documentation art. Anne's lecture will reflect upon these terms, upon the significance of the Experimental Art Foundation and the post-object art exhibition, the theories of Donald Brooke, among others, and also the network of experimental art relations both within and between Australia and New Zealand. And we'll also consider the legacy of the post-object show for experimental art in Australia and the development of a theoretical dialogue about such work in Donald Brooks' writings. Anne Marsh is Professor of, um, sorry, Professorial Research Fellow at the Victorian College of the Arts at the University of Melbourne. She's known for her expertise on photography, performance and feminism. In 2018, Anne developed the major symposium Women, Art and Feminism in Australia since 1970 at the Victorian College of the Arts, along with Doing Feminism, Sharing the World, a series of artist residencies and programs, two significant projects which we at ACCA were very happy to collaborate with in alignment with our then concurrent exhibition Unfinished Business Perspectives on Art and Feminism. In 2015, Anne curated Performance Presence video time at what was then, or what had then become, the Australian Experimental Art Foundation and is now known as ACE Open, which was a, pro and a program that Anne presented of performance art live and online, which is also accompanied by the National Symposium, You Had to Be There. 
Anne's books include, but are not limited to, Performance Ritual Document, uh, published by Macmillan in 2014, Look, Contemporary Australian Photography Since 1980, also with Macmillan in 2010, and Body and Self, Performance Art in Australia, 1969 to 1992, um, Oxford University Press in 1993. So following the um, lecture this evening, we will open the floor to questions. Um, and my colleague Miriam Kelly, um, curator at ACCA, will also be on hand with a microphone to welcome questions. So um, please yeah, um, join in the conversation after Anne's lecture. But in the meantime, would you please join me in welcoming Professor Anne Marsh. Thank you, Max, for that warm introduction. I'll try not to knock myself out on the microphone here. When I was sitting down to um, write this lecture, I looked at what I'd proposed when Max asked me if I'd do this for this fantastic um, series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibitions Histories, which I think is so terribly important and I was very pleased to know that it's going to continue next year. We just don't do enough of this kind of research in Australia and we've produced some of fantastic exhibitions and I'm not talking about the blockbusters up the road, um, but the, you know, the really kind of meaty curatorial programs that are run at ACCA and elsewhere around Australia. So it's great to be part of this. But when I sat down to do it and I started opening books and going back to the words of Donald Brook, I realised that there's really a PhD that needs to be done in this area. So this is kind of just a taste, a taste of Donald, um, who died relatively recently. Um, and uh, so it's a kind of homage to him in a way, the first part of it. And then I'm going to kind of gallop forward <clears throat> to the present, kind of. Um, so... This was the poster that um, I believe Noel Sheridan did, and I believe that's him in the picture, pointing at various screens. Remember, this is 1976, so video art was very new on the ground. And um, I'd like to thank my dear friend and colleague, Ian DeGrucci, who helped me a lot in getting the documentation together. We spent um, a whole day in his studio in Footscray rummaging through his archive. And this is uh, part of the actual series of works um, above the line 1976 by Ian that features uh, in the, um, the poster, online poster for this series. So thank you, Ian. Um, now, this is one of Donald's very famous diagrams, which I still find slightly incomprehensible. Um, and that's Donald in his office at the University of Sydney after Bert Flugelman and optonic, optonic, what was they called? Optics trans, kinetic optronics, that's right. I shouldn't have had that gin. Um, had feathered his office. Um, he was very proud of this. It was um, subsequently shown at the situation now, object and post-object art in 1971. I'm going to make a bit about these dates. So Sydney had a post-object art show too, kind of. So to begin with Donald Brook. Donald Brook is often cited as the person who initiated the use of the term post-object art. 
Stephanie Britton, in her tribute to Donald Brooke earlier this year, writes, the lecture called Flight from the Object, which is probably his most famous tract that he gave for the Power Institute lecture in 1968. She says that it was there that he introduced the term post-object art, and this was eventually recognised for the watershed that it was. And Stephen Jones, who provides one of the most thorough histories of this period, says, Donald Brooke had theorised a post-object art in his power lecture in 1969, sorry, it was 1969, Flight from the Object, and it was, the begin it was beginning to appear in the activities of artists within the New South Wales branch of the Contemporary Art Society who were exhibiting at Central Street and others who had begun experimenting with conceptual art installation and happen happenings which largely grew out of sculpture. I'm going to bring together these things, installation, sculpture, Sydney, Melbourne, and eventually New Zealand. Um, however, Donald Brooke didn't actually use the term post-object art in his power lecture, Flight from the Object, and to set the record straight, he said so in his 2014 book, Get a Life. He didn't actually publish a paper specifically on post-object art until 1974. It's always difficult to establish when something really entered um, discourse for the first time. The New Zealand art historian Christina Barton argues that the term was used in New Zealand, Australia and England from the late 1960s to describe art practices that extended sculpture into temporary, multi-part, mixed media and largely ephemeral situations. Following Barton, who wrote her MA on the subject of post-object art in New Zealand, I think it's safer to say that Donald Brook introduced the term to Australia. It just wasn't named as such in his power lecture, Flight from the Object. Like so many contemporary scholars, Brooke argues that other terms, as Max has already noted, have often been used and preferred over the term post-object art. And these terms include alternative art, non-commodity art, conceptual art, idea art, process art, and documentation art. In Brooke's scheme, post-object art was recognisable as a reaction against mainstream modernism. As a mode of art, it was more inclined to explore intellectual systems than sensory experience. And its primary aim, according to Brooke, was to investigate ways of thinking, art as a kind of epistemology. Donald Brooke tended to use the terms experimental art and post-object art interchangeably. He disliked the term conceptual art, and he used the example of Robert Barry's Psychic series, and you'll remember the famous one from this series, everything in the unconscious perceived by the senses but not noted by the conscious mind during trips to Baltimore during the summer of 1967. Now, Brooke argued that this kind of work is concerned exclusively with ideas and as such, it was so self-conscious that it remained a totally private affair and didn't participate in a public forum. In contrast, Brooke argued that works of experimental art were, and this is classic Donald Brooke talk that follows, they were unspecific experimental models of possible forms of life 
public in principle and functioning as regulative models in terms of which all so social institutions may be modified or reconceived. That's Donald Brook at his best in a way. He's very kind of classic with this kind of analytic uh, philosophical talk. This is Anne Newmarch on the screen. Now, Brook moved to Adelaide in the early 1970s to take up a professorship at Flinders uh, University. Brian Medlin, then partnered with the political artist Annie Newmarch, was also professor at Flinders. Medlin and Newmarch were the key protagonists of a Maoist group called the Progressive Art Movement, which held a position more akin to community arts, and they believed strongly that art had a commitment to generate social change. Medlin and Brooke famously debated the role of art at the contemporary arts, in the Contemporary Art Society's broadsheet, which was published in Adelaide. And Brooke always tried to establish, right up to the end really, a position outside the established radical left. This isn't to say he wasn't radical, but he was, didn't want to be associated with this, uh, what he considered to be a kind of um, prescribed position, if you like. And he insisted on a more philosophical engagement in art theory. He once told me that he was Australia's only art theorist, and in many respects, this is true. This is Bert Flugerman's homage to Magritte. Um, Bert Flugerman also moved from Sydney to Adelaide around the same time and took up a position at the Adelaide School of Art. Flugerman's position at the art school was central to the initial success of the EAF, and he was instrumental in establishing the network of experimental sculptural activities in, in Mordura, especially the early 70s, early to mid 70s, uh, sculpture scape. Okay, so this lecture is trying to um, make connections between people and places, between Australia and New Zealand, and to find the key protagonists and how these connections came about and who drove them. So this is my network diagram, which is going to recur a few times. This link between prominent, prominent artists in art schools, experimental spaces and post-object art is also apparent in New Zealand, where Jim Allen headed up sculpture at the Elam School of Art in Auckland and campaigned rigorously for New Zealand sculpture and its expanded field, post-object art, performance art and installation art, to be represented at Mildura and later at the Art exhibitions, which are sometimes slightly forgotten in this little history. Now, Alan was a frequent visitor to the EAF, as were his colleagues and his students. Students pay, play a key role um, obviously in the art schools, but they feed in, funnel in through these um, major artist protagonists into the art spaces and become the next generation. The EAF was Donald Brooks' brainchild, which he cooked up as an idea in the summer in Adelaide of 1973-74. It was then established in 1974 by Brooke, the philosopher and writer, Noel Sheridan, the charismatic Irish artist director, and Bert Flugelman, the artist teacher, with his little army of student volunteers who literally built the EAF space with Noel Sheridan. 
Gates and works by Noel. In the case of, for establishing the EAF, written by Donald Brook and published in the EAF's 1975 yearbook, he says, the project emphasises experiment and the concept of experiment in the arts is not easy to elucidate beyond saying that one expects to operate on one boundary or another and often across boundaries of contemporary orthodox art media, styles and attitudes. This is the situation now, which was at Central Street, as I mentioned, in 1971, called Object or Post-Object Art, and the list of artists that were in that show, which I hope you can read. Um, obviously, the, um, the old and the new guard coming on. Um, Okay, so established in 1974, the EAF played an important role in Adelaide, but by that time there had already been a strong cohort of experimentation in Sydney around Inhibitress, established by Mike Parr, Peter Kennedy and Tim, Tim Johnson, Central Street, which showed the exhibition The Situation Now, Object or Post-Object Art in 1971, and the much wilder, and I'm using Vivian Bins here, uh, Yellow House, um, in, um, which was in Sydney under the guidance of Martin Sharp, which hosted the counterculture and pop art. It was the preferred home of Mike Brown and Vivian Binns and was more irreverent of the serious avant-garde manifesting in other alternative art spaces. There's also been, uh, there'd also been activity here in Melbourne at Pinacothica, in Richmond, and also the Ewing and George Payton galleries. I love phallic monument. It doesn't get shown enough, I don't think. That's why it's there. This is Mike, of course, um, and an installation shot from the EAF post-object art show, I hope, on the right-hand side. And here is he's holding his breath for some time in this one. Um, Donald Brook and Terry Smith were art critics for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Nation Review in the early 70s, and they helped champion and contextualise the works of Mike Parr, Tim Johnson, Peter Kennedy and others. Brook was also the mastermind behind the art workshop at the Tin Sheds, which he set up in 1968 as an alternative art school. So this is his first alternative pedagogical experiment in a way. He did this from his position at the University of Sydney in the Power Institute, where he was in continuous uh, discourse with Bernard Smith, who was considered to be, of course, one of the great protagonists of Australian art history. Ironically, Bernard Smith favoured a U European model of education, which included a separation of art history and practice. Donald, on the other hand, as an artist and a theorist, saw great potential in collapsing those boundaries. And we're only just starting to see that in the pedagogies of art schools now, the collapsing of the boundaries between art history and theory and art practice. So he was definitely ahead of his time in that way. He also disliked vehemently disliked art history as a discipline, and, and thus you can imagine that Donald Brook and Bernard Smith often argued quite famously at times. It's a very bad slide of Joan Grounds, who is not a fan of documenting her work, so very bad slide. Um, Brooke embedded Bert Flugerman as the coordinator of the arts workshop at the Tin Sheds, along with Ma Grounds, who was uh, from architecture at the University of Sydney. 
And this was the beginning of Brooks' hands-on engagement with art education. It was an experiment in open studio and multidisciplinary practice, which was incredibly successful and became more and more political in the 1970s as radical printmakers like Tony Robinson, Marie McMahon and other feminists practiced and taught there. The sheds were later run by Joan Grounds, herself, as you've seen, a committed experimental sculptor who Donald Brook had great respect for. But this evolution was not experimental. This evolution into the political art um, wasn't experimental in Donald Brook's eyes. And like the EAF, it eventually disappointed him. The history of the tin sheds as an instigator of change is very well documented in a book by Teresa Kenyon in a book, um, titled Under a Hot Tin Roof, if anybody wants to follow that up. This is Bob Ramsey, who was a great uh, Brook um, follower. So despite the tin shed being one of Brooks' pedagogical projects, it was the Experimental Art Foundation more than any other group that tried to implement Brooks' theory. The statement displayed in the foyer all through the years that it was operational clearly indicated the theoretical framework of the organisation. One, our appreciation of the world is active, not passive and art displays an emergent apprehension. Two, art is only incidentally and not essentially aesthetic. Art is concerned with every kind of value and not particularly with beauty. Three, art interrogates the status quo. It is essentially and not incidentally radical. Four, art is experimental action. It models possible forms of life and makes them available for public criticism. In 1976, Donald Brook outlined some of the qualities of post-object art in a paper delivered at the Experimental Art Foundation for a national forum titled A History of Post-Object Art in Australia and New Zealand. It was this paper that was to be published in the post-event publication for the post-object art show and the publication, as we know, never eventuated uh, because they couldn't get the funding. It's subsequently been published by the Experimental Art Foundation and by ArtLink in various books. Uh, books sorry. Um, now, Brooks' definition includes, and there's a long list of things, I've just picked some things out. Post-object art may be physically tenuous rather than solid, literally as thin as air, and indeed entirely non-physical in the sense um, in which poems, promises, abstract and abstractions generally are not physical. Post-object art may tend, un unlike object art, to require human activation or participation in order to constitute itself and not merely in order to be appreciated. Post-object art is very likely to rely heavily upon its physical, temporal, social, historic, e economic, etc., context and not, like object art, deprives its own hermetic autonomy. Hence, unlike object art, it will not even tend to formalism, nor will it invite the sort of attention that is characterised as pure contemplation. Post-object art, if it is, is physical or makes use of any physical elements, may tend to be distributed rather than unified, localised or compact. 
post-object art is very likely to be ephemeral, whereas object art characteristically has the ambition to be permanent. Finally, post-object art will most likely not be elevated, either in a literal sense on a pedestal or framed, or even in a metaphysical sense. It may seem just to be a thing among other things. Works of post-object art, like, say, acts of kindness, are not framed by any customary device. Brooke's most notor notorious example of a work of post-object art was, was what's become known as the skunk oil affair. This, he wouldn't get away with this today, neither would the artists that did it. Um, this was a quasi-terrorist bomb scare which resulted in 42 Woolworths stores being searched and three bombs deactivated in Adelaide in November and December 1979. The initial scare was reported on the front page of the advertiser, as you can see here, on the 30th of November, and the sensational caption read, Threats to gas bomb Woolworth store. Stores hundreds cleared from supermarkets, a $150,000 extortion demand. Five unemployed university graduates had devised a sophisticated plot geared to extract funds from a wealthy supermarket chain to finance their own business. The extortionists planned to market and distribute a miniature battery which they claimed to have invented themselves, a small energy efficient device more powerful, they claim, than a car battery. Now, Senior Sergeant, um, or Senior Chief Superintendent Lockwood was reported as saying, at this stage we are treating the matter very seriously. We have no indication as to the extent these people will go to. However, in the same report, it was revealed that the police were uncertain whether to treat the uh, whole thing, uh, these gas bombs, as a serious extortion attempt or an elaborate prank. And when they finally um, published the letter from the extortionists, it became fairly clear that it was, in fact, um, really a prank. So several days later, Donald Brooke stepped in to endorse this incident as a work of art. And in a letter to the editor, he announced that, it would be a serious mistake to suppose that skunk oil is a hoax um, or that it is a serious crime. It is indeed both and neither. It is in fact a work of art and one of the most powerful to be made in Adelaide in this decade. Then summoning a rhetoric familiar to his readers, Brooke continued, Oops. Serious works of art are new models of the world. They enable us to see things that we had not previously seen. Skunk oil shows us terrorist crime as a model of the capitalist system, a way of looking at it that many will reject, but most will not even have tried. Oops. Bob Ramsey again. Now, although artists associated with the EAF appeared to be seduced by Brooks' theories, their practical understanding of the critics' thesis may have been fairly limited. Bob Ramsey, who probably understood Brooks' theory more than any of the other artists because he undertook a, an MA on the topic under Donald Brooke, um, 
argued that there was much misunderstanding of and some resentment towards Brooks' theories amongst the artists at the EAF. And I can only speculate this because a lot of it was fairly incomprehensible and very dry. But I just want to, in terms of all of Donald Brooks' pronouncing on the experimental, just look at a work that was very sensationalised the year before the post-object art show, and that was the aborted attempt of Stellark's first suspension in 1975, which some of you may know about. Um, so in 1975, um, Stellark tries to do his first full body suspension uh, event uh, at the EAF, and it's banned by the board. This event was certainly experimental, but Donald Brook took the lead in arguing against it. Brook was not a fan of what he called spectacle art or expressionism, and although Stellark is not an expressionist, his body suspensions are spectacular, and some critics and art historians like to label such works as narcissistic. I think Brooks' concern really was a legal concern that he thought maybe the foundation would be sued if anything went wrong um, health-wise. Um, but nevertheless, um, Stellark's work was banned from the Experimental Art Foundation. Um, and this was the letter that they sent him, um, which he subsequently read out. Um, I'm sure that looking back on the action that effectively censored Stellark, all the board members concerned now um, consider it a miscarriage of justice. In fact, it is probably the biggest mistake made at the EAF given its creed to support experimental art. And Stellark, who is an incredibly generous artist with rarely a harsh word for his critics, and there are many critics, uh, still finds this rejection a barb in his early career. I also suspect that this was the beginning of the disagreements between Brooke and Sheridan, Sheridan who was staunchly against any censorship in the arts. Um, he famously did this work, which I'll mention uh, a little bit later on, Beyond the Fridge, which was an anti-censorship uh, work. So, let's start again with the show of 1976 that Stellart wasn't in. Um, what's interesting, and I'm showing you the list of artists and the, um, the calendar on the front cover of the book, what's interesting about the list is that it's so eclectic, much more so than the list of artists exhibiting in 1975 when Stalark was included. The previous year, the roll call included artists and critics who are now protagonists, who, who are key protagonists, sorry, in the conceptual art field or in the field of extended sculpture. The artists, including um, Ian Hamilton, John Nixon, Ingo Kleinhardt, um, uh, Steve Leishman, Stellark, among others, were known then and have subsequently established major careers. The outsiders in the 1975 list included the emerging Bob Ramsey, who established experimental practice at the EAF following Donald Brook, as I said before, and um, an artist uh, called Fernanda Martin, who was the only um, woman exhibited in 1975, and I happen to remember Fernan Fernanda because she was in first year in 1975 when I was at art school. So she was a first year art school student. I don't know how she got to exhibit, but anyway. 
The point is that the, the post-object art show presented many new names and it established a collaboration with like-minded artists. So the artists on this list um, are many um, and, and diverse artists coming from different, uh, different states, different places, different forms of art, not all these um, experimental modelling artists that Brooke was uh, the protagonist for. So it presented new names and established names, and it um, presented uh, artists from New Zealand as well. Some of the artists exhibiting we've already heard of, and others like Jim Allen, Benita Eli, Mickey Allen, Bruce Barber, John Davis, Sue Ford, Tim Johnson, Richard Larter, Immens Tillers, and Mike Parr are household names. But there are others on the list who have disappeared. Um, uh, and we haven't heard of since much since then. So my network diagram again. So the New Zealand network is really initiated by Noel Sheridan and Jim Allen to a certain ex to to a big extent. As I said, Jim was teaching sculpture in the very vibrant Elam Art School in Auckland, and was a passionate advocate for experimental art as well as being a radical artist himself. He's credited with increasing the presence of New Zealand sculptors at the Mildura Sculpture Triennale throughout the 60s and early to mid-70s. And he was artist in residence at the Experimental Art Foundation throughout 1976 for the whole year. He was on sabbatical at the EAF. Christina Barton argues that Elam was a crucible for post-object art in New Zealand and that Jim Allen was a visionary head of sculpture who pursued innovative pedagogy, openness to experimentation and on entrepreneurial advocacy. As indicated earlier, the other person of significance in this network was Bert Flugerman, who ran the sculpture department at the Adelaide School of Art. The two art schools were relatively independent at the time and run primarily for artists. Neither had been amalgamated into a university. Um, Flugelman made it fairly mandatory for his students to attend EAF events and to participate in the Mildura Sculpture Triennales. If we weren't exhibiting ourselves, and many students did, we were helping Bert and his mates all the time with their works. Sculpturescape was a mecca for students, a kind of mobile art school. We all camped on site. The network of exchange thus begins with the passion of some established artists who then bring on their students and younger colleagues, and it was a sort of mentoring program in many respects. I'm going to run through some slides, and I'm picking out the highlights to some extent, but also trying to show you the eclectic nature of the show itself. It's difficult to, show, to reconstruct it, as I said, because there's no catalogue and there was no post-event publication. So I'm showing you work by Jim Allen that actually wasn't in the show, but it was produced in 1976 and it was quite controversial, the planting the native. So I start with Jim Allen and some of the works that he presented in 76. The work which is listed as being included in the show is called Boots, but I haven't found any documentation of it. But Planting a Native was a performance I saw, and I remember its context well, because it was res a response to the controversy that surrounded Tony Colling's participatory installation work, also titled Planting a Native, outside the Art Gallery of South Australia earlier in the year, and probably during the Adelaide Festival of Arts. 
Colding have made a quasi-suburban front garden enclosed by, I think, a corrugated fence so you couldn't see into it. I believe audience members were invited, I remember going, and I think you were invited to go up the road a bit and collect an Aboriginal native uh, kind of statue like a garden gnome, so you can imagine how controversial this was, and to plant it in Tony Colling's suburban garden outside the Art Gallery of New South Wales, uh, Art Gallery of South Australia. So the outcry against the work was resounding as people saw it as a gross act of racism. And I think there's, we can debate this later, I don't think that was Colling's intention, his intention was to show the racism in Australian society. But, um, in response, Alan sets up a tree in the, art, in the Experimental Art Foundation and proceeds to hack it and maim it with various semi-industrial tools, such as a chainsaw, while I think it was someone else so, um, was reciting Alan Ginsberg's howl at top note, but mostly drowned out by the machines. Like Sheridan, um, Jim Allen was seriously committed to an art without censorship and of any kind, which is, again, interesting if you think that Stellart was banned in 1975. Another artist that was in the show, and this is where the eclecticism comes in, is Mickey Allen. This is her series, My Trip, 1976. So in stark contrast to this heavy-handed avant-garde, the photo-based works of Mickey Allen and Sue Ford, who I don't have documentation of, were included in the show. Sue Ford showed her series Boyfriends. Both artists were at the time representative of a critical edge and an expansion of the field of photography. Ford with her time-like series and Allen with works that celebrated the everyday and documented the voices of, you know, would-be ordinary people that she was photographing. And Emmett's Tillers is down in the, in the list of artists that we saw as um, exhibiting this work, Conversation with the Bride. And I did go to the post-object art show, but I was only 20, <laughs> and I can't remember seeing this work installed, and neither can Ian, and I think I asked Peter before whether he saw it installed, but it's down in the catalogue, and I think it's interesting, maybe it were, he showed the photographs, but not on their pedestals, I'm not sure. But what's interesting about this work is it becomes, of course, a signature work of postmodernism. It was bought by the very uh, clever Art Gallery of New South Wales the same year, 1976. They purchased it. Um, so what Tillers is doing, for those of you who don't know, is setting up a visual dialogue between Marcel Duchamp's large glass, the bride stripped bare by a bachelor's even, and one of the res re responding works of an earlier, um, it's, it's one that responds to, um, sorry I've lost my place here, so on the other side is the Hans Heiss and the Australian landscape, so they're, they're on their little tripods, or tall tripods, it's like they're talking to one another, Duchamp and Hans Heysen. So it's, it's, it's these tiny photographic rec replicas that stand on these little, um, these little tripods. And what's interesting is that this is a precursor of a very I ironic and intellectually driven uh, postmodernism, which was about representation itself. So there's this shift happening inside the exhibition as it was being shown between an, uh, the 
older avant-garde and what's going to become what's going to come next is postmodern um, art of representation with its ironic take on um, on history and as I said very um, clever of the art gallery of New South Wales to purchase it so quickly oops this is Tim Johnson, who had an artist book in the show that we couldn't find any documentation of. So I'm showing you his famous series, Disclosures, from 1972, where he famously asked university students in Brisbane to lie down on the floor and try to experience an orgasm. Um, they did try, apparently. I don't know what happened. And dusting and tickling his then um, wife, Vivian Johnson. Um, again, to the eclecticism that was in the show. This is Richard Larter, Art Fool, which apparently was shown in the exhibition. Um, probably included because um, Sheridan would have liked the edgy pop sex context, which had had great credibility in Sydney on the back of the scandals associated with the legal case against the Oz magazine. Of course, Martin Sharp had been jailed in 1974 for the um, allegedly obscene drawings that he'd published for Oz magazine. He wasn't jailed for very long, but he was jailed. And, of course, Sharp was the person that was behind the, the Yellow House, uh, which is the antithesis of the serious avant-garde. So Richard Larter is put in here. Of course, Noel Sheridan hated censorship in the arts. Um, and he'd had to censor Stellark the year before. Perhaps it was his go at Brooke, I'm not sure. So back to Sheridan's Beyond the Fridge. Um, as I've already noticed, this is, he was very strongly anti-censorship and he famously presented this uh, work in 79 where he had a go at not only the Maoist art group, the progressive art group, um, but also all the feminists who had objected to including this fridge in another exhibition uh, because it was uh, laden with um, sexist comments about women and Sheridan did a very provocative performance about the fridge, um, arguing that art should never be censored. Um, Benita Eli was in the exhibition with her 20th century mythological beasts, a strong environmental work, um, which was in sync with some of the other more kind of political works, I guess, more like Mickey Allen or Sue Ford. And, and Mike Parr, we know, was in the show with his rules and displacement activities, which he presented as a slideshow, as far as I can tell from the documentation. Um, Gra Graham Davis was in the show with uh, this invalid product as subject in 1976, and I'm also showing his su surrogate from 1978. So the 1976 work uh, that he showed outside the actual um, EAF space uh, in the public gardens on the banks of the Yarra, where he, he walks up and down tirelessly all day, uh, pacing like um, someone who is uh, very disturbed. And the, the line between art and life was so strong that many people took him to be a very disturbed person. Um, Surrogate was one of the first performances I ever saw, um, I saw it at the EAF, um, where a male artist um, is actually resonating with a feminist agenda. Davis was a single father caring for a newborn baby and during the performance he sits to the side and sews baby teat bottles onto his nipples as we watch a slideshow of his domestic mothering routines with his young daughter. Um, 
Bruce Barber was in the exhibition, not sure what he showed, uh, but uh, he was a major New Zealand artist who subsequently moved to Canada. He'd been presenting performance practice throughout the 70s and was considered a great advocate for experimentation in New Zealand. And the important critic in New Zealand is Winston Kernow, who's been up on my slide, my network slide. And he notes that these early works were considered nameless persona who ca carried out simple instructions. And later on, um, Kernow and um, Barber actually kind of collaborate in this eight-hour duration piece. And I haven't seen this done um, apart from um, a Mike Parr work some years ago where he inserted, I think, Anthony Bond, I can't remember, into one of his performances and had him document as a writer what was happening. And this is exactly what um, Kernow Dad did for um, Bruce Barber. So Bruce Barber is doing this eight-hour endurance piece, very participatory with lots of people involved in making kind of everyday life uh, music um, and the critic is writing about it in situ the whole time. Quite a different take on art criticism to Donald Brook in Australia at the time with his analytic philosophy. But a very big spokesperson for New Zealand experimental art. So what's interesting historically about the post-object art show, I think, is this eclecticism. It goes way outside the parameters of Brooks' idea of experimentation to include fairly strong political statements, pop art and feminist and ecological works. It positions a broad array of alternative practices, some of which were informed by the demand for social change as much as or more so than a desire for experimentation, for experimental practice, something of Benita Eli. This is also apparent in the full history of exhibitions and events at the Experimental Art Foundation in the 70s and into the 80s. And as a feminist, I inherited the idea from West Coast feminists in, in America that the avant-garde is always male and pale. But it never sat comfortably with my experience in Adelaide at the time. Although the EAF was male-dominated, domina it didn't exclude women artists. It often included students, and it consistently presented participatory workshops for children. There were always children, children, children at the EAF, which was actually quite helpful for some women artists who were trying to exhibit there or work there. The EAF also provided a great set of resources, which was important, both in terms of publications, which Sheridan had collected and shared uh, with everybody, and he added to during his tenure, and it had a printing press and a darkroom, which everybody took advantage of. The darkroom at the Experimental Art Foundation was much better than the darkroom in an old house at the, at the art school, which was really crappy, really, compared to what they had. Um, and there was, uh, this is Lee Hobber and Ian DeGrucci, 78 and 80. There was, from the beginning, an engagement with Aboriginal artists, as is evident in the sound of projection installation and participatory events of Lee Hobber and Ian DeGrucci. And you can look up Lee Hobber if you don't know him. He's now in Tasmania, has worked in this area for a long time. Um, and I want to move quickly now into what happened after the 70s. And the, what became obvious at the, at the EAF, because they had performance nights every Friday night, 
and sometimes, as Ian and I were talking about coming in in the car, only five people would turn up, but people turned up. Um, and some nights there were 60 people. And a lot of performance artists came through, both international artists, but also it really, it really nurtured the local content. Um, so performance events were pretty diverse, and I think the focus on performance was very clear by 1980, when the EAF put on uh, for the Adelaide Festival of Arts a week of performance at an old kind of historic house in North Adelaide called Carclu House. And this is uh, Dale Franks, who um, did a very controversial performance where he's oiling a gun in a pit and, and, and smoking fire. And I remember being with some feminists at the time and them yelling at him, you should be using KY jelly, um, which I thought was quite funny. Um, and um, Kevin Mortison, a very archival shot um, of his of his performance, The Rowing, where you've got these naked men rowing this rowing skiff on dry land and their whole effort is to raise and lower a blind which is off screen. So very kind of Dada-esque kind of performance. In the same festival, Jill Orr presented this work which is now iconic, especially the old videotape which we salvaged some years ago, which is on the right-hand side. Um, but the more vogue shots on the left-hand side, this is at the EAF, there's one shot where Noel Sheridan's cutting her hair, um, very um, EAF performance. Um, so by 1980, performance art is up and running in Adelaide and it's been influenced by this nurturing of the Experimental Art Foundation, I'd argue. The other thing that's happened is that the women's art movement has arrived. It's established in 77 after the women's show. Um, this is the Wamets, which Ian found in his archive. Thank God he had that picture. And Sandra Greentree in the Adelaide Festival where she's being fed endlessly in a glass tank until it, this gluttony kind of flows over. So by this time, the women's art movement's established and it's got its own exhibition space. And in 1980, it presented its own program of performance art at the festival in tandem with the EAF. It also generated the first national exhibition of women's performance art here in Melbourne at the Ewing and George Payton Galleries called Women at Work. That was a month-long uh, performance festival. This is uh, Joan Ground's Stinky, which she did have documented, and Anne Fogarty, Mother. Um, and the women's art movement really was born. It was born in the basement of the Experimental Art Foundation, all through 76, 77, leading up to the women's show in 1977, which was this um, kind of open show. Anybody who um, put in a proposal was hung. It's, it had a very democratic kind of um, politic behind it. But all of this happened at the Experimental Art Foundation, and the show was exhibited there and the adjoining jam factory. Without that architecture, there wouldn't have been a women's show. So back to the diagram. So by 1980, it's clear that there's a new generation rising and these artists, curators and activists pioneered the second wave of alternative art spaces and artist-run initiatives. This is um, Anne's Art in Hobart um, in 19... I think it's 83, yes, 83. Um, there was an exhibition and a conference. It was the first... Um, 
National Conference of, Australia, of um, Alternative Arts Spaces, and it was in some ways spurred on this, uh, the, su the success of the Experimental Art Foundation to a certain extent that there would be a conference like this. But it wasn't as uh, it wasn't such a um, the success of the EAF had caused the Australia Council to focus on experimental art, experimental art. Uh, uh, to some extent, and wanting this to happen in every state. So they changed their funding rules and they decided that they would fund one contemporary art space, the flagship space in each state. So this was welcome on one level, but it wasn't welcome for a younger generation who then had to compete for the funding. So Open Sandwich was the kind of um, groundswell of dissent against this. This is the poster that um, Art Unit from Sydney, at Alternative Art Space, made um, in um, response to the Australia Council. And on the right-hand side, a younger generation of women artists who were associated with hardened arteries uh, created havoc amongst the older generation of feminists by pre presenting a striptease at the opening, uh, which stopped the women's panel the, the day after at the conference as people argued the toss about whether it was uh, bad for women or not. So this very rowdy conference aired all of these views. And what it showed was that artist-run initiatives and studio, practice, uh, studio programs were certainly alive and well. In Sydney, the Studio Access proje Project was up and running. Um, Eyeline had begun by this stage. The Artworks Union was established. Um, and there was a lot happening for this younger generation. And probably one of the most controversial uh, works, again by Tony Colling, was Dance Dance, uh, where he had the local uh, dance, um, ballroom dancers from Hobart that he'd worked with as a participatory group over months, dancing, dancing, dancing to a soundtrack of what the war was happening in Northern Ireland. Very controversial. People walked out. They thought it was so politically unsound. Tony Colling was good at this kind of, uh, making these kind of statements. So, um, it could be said that the then younger generation were educated well by their older peers. These were very, um, Tony Colling was of both generations, but the art unit people and the hardened art arteries people, they'd been um, exhibiting as students at the Experimental Art Foundation, then moved on to Sydney. So they'd had exposure to these places and spaces and the idea of a radical art that's supposed to make new modeling and so forth. Now, the history of performance art installation and conceptually driven work is now well known. Many of the major protagonists are in national collections and continue to exhibit in Australia and overseas. The Experimental Art Foundation and Brooks' theoretical writings about post-object art and alternative art practices set a firm foundation for this activity. But that wave of performance activity, unlike the artist-run initiative developments, didn't really engage with the alternative pedagogies that consistently were aired by Brooke Sheridan, uh, Flugerman and Allen, even though you know, that they were the people that had been at the tin sheds. They were the people that were trying to do this kind of mentoring program and very successfully at this places like the Experimental Art Foundation. But this aspect wasn't really taken up by the artists themselves. And there was more focus on this from the 1990s um, as 
people started to look back on this period or said they weren't looking back on this period but were taking some of these ideas on, on board. And these were informed by left ideologies and curatorial practices. And it's been fueled by now by years of participatory practice and relational practice to some extent. So I'd say that art as activism has always been a slippery beast because capitalism is so powerful and hungry for difference. It sends out all these tentacles and draws edges and extremes into the centre very, very quickly. I don't believe there's an outside of the system. We're all complicit, especially in the West. Um, we, you know, we've got far too big a uh, footprint on the planet. Uh, we're just far too dominant. And as a species, Stellarx quite rightly says we're obsolete. But having said that, I do think that we have a responsibility to keep practicing on the edge, to keep experimental modeling going um, in an attempt to find better models of possible worlds. And I'm with Donald Brook on this. It's not a race or a battle, it's just a persistent practice. I'm a bit more optimistic than he was. He tended to set up projects and then after a few years moan and groan that they'd failed. I just want to end um, with doing feminism, sharing the world. This is Anne Newmarch on the right-hand side and her Nat Thomas take on this for the residency program. So the part of Brooke that resonates with me today when I look at and participate in relational, participatory and pedagogical projects is his idea that post-object art can be compared with acts of kindness. The compassionate aspects of art have never uh, fully been realised and I think that the best of today's explorations are drawing on this idea. This is certainly what drove the residency program I curated at the Norma Redpath House in the summer of 1718, where over three months uh, new participatory groups lived in the house and offered programs and events for the public. Every week we had an open house evening and I introduced each one with reference to Lucy Rigare's text, Sharing, Sharing the World. And I just wanted to read you this kind of text. I said, I'm particularly interested in small group processes and their genesis in the early women's liberation movement as well as other alternative political and art movements. It is my belief that the small group nurtures and generates ideas on a human level and that this inspires and gives the possibility for change. Thinking about this residency project, I was drawn to Lucy Rigare's book, Sharing the World. It is a book that tries to understand our fear of the other both outside and within ourselves. It talks about how we might cross thresholds and welcome the other to us. In today's world, this idea seems to me to be terribly important. How might we think about art and life in such a way that it can help to ease the path over thresholds and into a symbolic home that we can all share? Irigare asks, do we not strive to share a place for the other hoping that the other will put an end to our confinement, create a draft of air in our enclosed and saturated world? Will not an other be the one who will reopen our world? Hence the gesture of welcoming him or her or them, indeed making them guests of honour. Needless to say, I think such gestures are small acts of kindness and art that participates in such activity can certainly be considered experimental, post-object and alternative. Thank you.
have some time for questions if anyone wants to grab the mic. Um, where the source of that was from, please. Um, it's from Luce Irigaro's book called Sharing the World. Wow, thank you. <laughs> that was a really... Oh, here we go. Wonderful. Thank you. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask about um, the... Uh, how do I put this? The kind of relationship between institutions and artists as the kind of... Um, the main sort of proactive force and... Uh, one thing about the Experimental Art Foundation that seems really interesting to me is that it seems driven as a kind of a creative rather than a kind of presentational entity. And uh, a number of the uh, of these these things that you've uh, brought up all seem to have had quite short lifespans. Like we think the time between 1976 and 1984, and the, the kind of timeline of your is that's kind of an epoch. And for us now in the, um, the kind of cycle of, of art production and, and uh, the way that work is kind of presented and represented in artists' exhibition um, practices, that's a very short space of time, um, which is a very long-winded way of, of asking um, how you think the, um, the kind of lifespan or urgency of institutions that are established very quickly and very kind of proactive in... Uh, presenting uh, new artist practices to a world and then kind of moving on to the next thing versus the time we're in now, which seems much more about trying to sustain an exhibition platform model rather than sort of letting things sort of burn and, and reinvent. Yeah. Was, um, was, the, was the question easy enough to find in that long couple? Um I think what, yeah, you, so you, if I can try and try and paraphrase it. So you're kind of saying we, we live in a, um, a situation now where we, it, it seems to be all about exhibitions and the, the product of the art and it's shown in a kind of spectacle kind of way and people come and go and it's, it's institutionalised. Is that what you mean? Yeah. structure so the yes. the, um, the establishment of an yeah. organization with artists to produce a certain kind of work yeah. and the lifespan of that um, whether you think that there's something of that kind of energy and spirit that is di is different to what it is now I think and um, whether the kind of so the radical actions or the kind of participatory actions that you've described in this timeline, whether the, the kind of institutional presentational framework that exists in our time uh, is kind of, I guess, like, what is it, is it causation or correlation? Like, what is the, do you think there's something that's lost now? No, I don't. I mean, I think we could... I think it's easy to say, oh, yes, we're lost now because, um, you know, we've got big galleries and institutions who've taken over the world. I think that's the... That's, it's a reality that there have always been galleries and institutions, like the Art Gallery of South Australia, the Contemporary Art Society, all those things existed. In fact, that kind of, like, Brooks, Brooks' whole thing is kind of anti the, the modernist canon to a certain extent. So there was a huge canon that was really being 
being reacted against. And I think that that's always going to be the, the same. I like that metaphor that, you know, um, patriarchal capitalism is like an octopus. It's got all these, these tentacles and it, it gets all the difference and all the yummy, yummy... The more radical you are, the more likely you'll get sucked into the centre and, you know, your fantastically radical action is going to be, you know, bastardised by, you know, Acker or someone. Right? And that's right, because they're looking for the good stuff too. Um, but I don't think that that mitigates against um, artists working on the edge. I think we have to have a both and situation. I think there is a both and situation. Like there's so many contemporary um, artist run initiatives around Melbourne, around. I've done a lot of research around Australia. They've got them in Townsville. They've got them in, you know, small towns, you know. Um, there's, there's a lot of resistance culture happening. And that resistance culture will be commodified and it will be institutionalised because of the way capitalism works. It always wants the new. But I don't think that that is stopping artists from having different kind of spaces. And I think artists are pretty canny at the moment. I think that they have lived through so much spectacle culture. Um, you know, even, I mean, the, the, the irony here is, of course, participatory art has, has been sucked into, into the system as well, you know. Some a curator, um, who will be unnamed, uh, from Sydney said when I was up there relatively recently, we can't sell any paintings anymore, and I don't know what you're talking about going on about performance art, you know, we can only sell experiences, you know. So experiences have become the new commodity, and I think that they, it's always going to be like that. But I don't think that that stops artists from having a practice that can be um, have a lot of integrity, and for all of the artists that you know have the uh, moment in the gallery, or the, all of the artists that have the retrospective by the time they're 65 or something like that, there are as many there are many 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 artists at the same level doing the same the, the same quality of work, the same experimentation that aren't going to get that, and that one of the reasons for that in Australia is that we don't support our culture enough. We would rather support American culture or European culture rather than Australian multicultural culture or indeed Australian indigenous culture. And I often say, you know, if I'm given a microphone, um, you know, if, um, you know, a third of, you know, half of the artists in Australia would be international superstars if they lived in New York. You know, but they're not because they're not given the... There's just not enough opportunities. So I wouldn't want to be, you know, saying even to the big house up the road, oh, I, I think you're getting too popularised now. I really do think those cartoon characters you've got, no, no, we don't want them. I wouldn't be saying that. I'd be saying, good on you, that's getting the people in. They like that, it's good, you know. Um, I wouldn't be um, making those kind of distinctions because the more is good to a certain extent. Um, otherwise, we've got Netflix, you know. <laughs> Which is good, but, you know, it's all European and American, isn't it? Hi. I'd just like you to elaborate a little bit on that last direction that you were seeing is, has got the most interesting work um, with the idea of compassion and wondering if, in a way, that um, feeds into different spaces or different themes that you see or different approaches you're seeing coming through. Um, yeah. 
When I did the residency program, um, I tried to get a mix of art. I tried to do an intergenerational thing. So we had an artist talk every week, every Thursday night, where I had a, an established artist like Destiny Deacon or Jill Orr or et cetera, et cetera, actually um, monitor the conversation with the younger group of artists. And, and the residency artists were all of it, mostly of a younger generation. There was only one established group, um, Barbara Cleveland Inc. Incorporated, who were at, at the house, but most of them were either radically outside, like Nat Thomas, who manages to stay fairly radically outside, or were younger artists from around Australia. And they were from around Australia. They weren't just Melbourne. Every state was represented. And I was really um, taken by the different ways that they were using the participatory mode and how it came together. And a lot of it had to do with compassion. And we had people coming, you know, taking two buses to come to the Thursday night things and they weren't art world people. Um, so I think that after, you know, I'd chosen the Irigaray kind of framework to a certain extent before I did the program, but I was really kind of um, touched in a way um, how it evolved. It was actually very exhausting because it was a one-week turnover, so for me personally it was exhausting. It's taken me a while to go, oh, actually that was really good. Um, but the, the younger artists who were in the house were about compassion, they were about sharing, and they were about getting to different people in society. So there was this real art life thing that was happening and there was no real um, pressure on them from me curating it, if you like, or coordinating it to actually produce anything. So often it was dinners that were had, it was um, more talking, um, some banner making. We had a you know bicycle thing, we had a radio thing, we had a, you know, various things we had, but um, it was about groups of people sitting around talking about things that were meaningful for that group. Yeah, so that was the compassion thing. But I think the compassion uh, or acts of kindness is to a certain extent, um, even in the art that has become commodified through the Biennale circuits, you know, as, as somebody said to me the other day, I don't want to see any more art where they're making food, you know, but I think it was driven and is driven to a certain extent by in a compassionate way. We don't see a lot of... Um, uh, heavy-handed participation, you know, it's kind of like... Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And thanks so much for the fantastic lecture and incredibly well-illustrated too and great to see all those images. Um, thanks to Ian. And, and Ian. Um, <laughs> and you, you mentioned, I mean, it's, it's also important to remember that the EEF was really, as you mentioned, like one of the first um, alternative art spaces before the IMA, I think, and, and then certainly before Acker and Pika and elsewhere. And then you mentioned the Australian Council's policy in the early 80s, which really institutionalised these spaces. And I think they had then had to have governance structures, which, um, you know, meant that they were no longer sort of artist-led, but they were, you know, incorporated associations. And, but... Since that time, there was, of course, a very great movement of artist-run spaces since Open Sandwich, and I think, but more recently, with real estate values, um, as they are in metropolitan cities especially, art, artist spaces are much more difficult to maintain as physical entities, and so, again, we're seeing these more fluid 
kind of congregations which without real estate and I was wondering wonder if you might reflect upon that at all in relationship to these earlier models, whether you see that you know, sharing the world, for example, does pick up on those kinds of uh, more dispersed, fluid yeah. Yeah. Uh, social congregations. Yeah, well, sh the Sharing the World program didn't have... None of the people had their own studios, I don't think, or, or spaces at all. It was all about coming together. You know, one of them was called Sleepover Club, for example. And so they'd come over, they'd sleep over, and, you know, they'd do things together. So it's a bit like the model of the book club or something like that, or the reading group. And the reading group has also taken off in a way as a, a different kind of model. And even internationally, that's starting to take off so people can participate kind of transnationally in a reading group that's in London. There's a feminist reading group like that. Um, and I think that, you know, social media helps a lot with those kind of things, and I think it opens up different ways of sharing and different ways of being together and networking um, that are being really interestingly used by artists. So I think artists are always ingenious um, with these things. I just think, you know, if there's no real estate, that might be quite liberating. Uh, create different kind of models and more vigilante models, you know. <laughs> Well, um, thank you so much, Anne. That was, as Max said, a really generous and wonderful lecture and fantastic slides. Picking up on what Max has mentioned briefly there with Artist Run Spaces, um, the next year's program um, for this lecture series will be um, up online and promoted very shortly, um, including some of um, Australia's early Artist Run Spaces. So we're really looking forward to welcoming you all, all back next year um, for the series. So please join me in thanking Anne for our lecture today.